The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Raise your hand if after last week you went ahead and read Genesis 38, after we were in 37. Anybody just, after like a little peek in, is like, I got to see what's coming next after that chapter. Anybody do that? Just peek at it. It's good if you did. Don't, you don't have to like hide it. But who knew stories like this were in the Bible? Who knew that there were, uh, that there were kind of these, these stories? And if you're unfamiliar with Genesis 38 and you didn't go ahead and read it, you're about to find out uh, that this is one of those uh, scandalous chapters that are included in the scriptures. And so the question that we have to ask as we get into any text of scripture was, well, what does it mean? What is God teaching us? What is this revealing about who God is? And then what, what can this passage teach me about how I'm to live in, in light of who God is? Particularly in this passage, how can, uh, how can someone's messed up life teach me now? And so what I want to do is I just want us to jump right into it. I'm going to read it for us. It's like 30 verses long or something, so not too bad. I want us to read it, and then we're going to take a little bit of a step back, and I'm going to provide a little context of the entire book of Genesis and where this particular chapter fits in the middle of that, give you the big idea, and then we'll go deeper into the chapter. Does that make sense? You see where we're going? We're going to read it, we're going to scale back, and then we're going to come and dive right into it. You ready for it? So without any, anything else, without any other introduction, let's go in. So we're in Genesis 38. Uh, it's at the Genesis is the first book of your Bible. And so just turn there if you don't know where it is, but turn there and then flip over probably about 38 pages or so in and you'll find Genesis 38. So let's read it. You ready for it? Here we come, we jump right in after Joseph has just been sold into slavery, and it says this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hirah. That's a cool name, right? Some of you that are having kids and things maybe consider Hirah. Hirah. No, just kidding. Verse 2. Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shuah. All kinds of Judah, hurrah, Shua. All right, I'll stop. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when, he, when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur's firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go to, into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into her, his brother's wife, he would waste it on the ground, waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hurah the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. 
When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cold prostitute who is at a name at the roadside? And they said, no, cold prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. When Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her room. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Would you pray with me as we sort this out? God in heaven, would you give us understanding today of your word? We're a people who always need you to open our eyes, but help us to see your glory, your purpose, your plan, even in a chapter of the Bible like this, God. Let us be not caught up in the details of it, but let us turn our attention to your goodness, your greatness, the glory of your name. Here we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, that was quite a trip, right? That was quite a ride. Some of you are like, we can read things like this in church? Well, yeah, we can. It's in the scriptures. God put it here for a purpose, and so we want to know what this purpose is. Remember, we are now just embarking on this series of God meant it for good, seeing God's faithfulness in every circumstance. And there's no place like this than in the book of Genesis and in Joseph's life. And so uh, to to understand this, like I said, I want to kind of scale back a little bit and just give you the big picture picture, the big theme of what the book of Genesis is teaching us. First, Genesis and the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Good. They're they're referred to as the Pentateuch. They were written by Moses. Moses recording these events as he was, uh, as the children of Israel were moving into the promised land. And so, like, picture this. As you read the book of Joshua, those people in, in that day that were moving then into the promised land, that is who Moses was writing to. Now, some uh, in, like, the last hundred years or so have tried to deny that. German higher critics that 
are unbelievers that have come up with all kinds of wild theories to deny that Moses wrote it, but uh, we, can, we, can, we can discount that. We don't have to. It's long been held that Moses wrote these books, and Jesus himself even confirmed that Moses was the author here. In John 5, 46 and 47, as he is, uh, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people of that day, he is confronting their hypocrisy and their unbelief. He says this, he says, For if you believe Moses... You would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so Jesus even confirms that Moses has wrote this. And so I say that Moses is writing to these Israelites who've just been wandering 40 years in the wilderness, wondering what in the world the Lord is doing, and now they are finally seeing God's promise fulfilled to them. So this central theme that Moses is bringing out through Genesis is just that, that God's covenant blessings are for his people and God will keep them. And so that's what what this book is about. First given to Abraham back in chapter 12, okay? Back in chapter 12, it starts there. So let's actually turn there. You want to do a little uh, look-see with me? Turn back a few pages to Genesis 12 when this guy Abram comes on the scene. And here is where God begins this promise of making this covenant with a man. Not based on his own good doings or because he was some spiritual dude. He was just a man, a pagan guy, probably worshiping maybe other gods. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I, this is God speaking, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In verse 4, Abraham responds, he goes. And later in verse 8, it says that he called upon the name of the Lord. And so he begins by making this covenant of a land saying, hey, leave your family, go to this land, and you will be a blessing, all wrapped up in God's promise. Then flip over a few pages to Genesis 15, and there's some more given to this promise. He's promised offspring, children, And now, mind you, this, we haven't read it, but Abram is an old guy, and his wife Sarah, they don't have any children, and they are old. So look at chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, somebody else, not his own offspring. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he, this is Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. That's faith. That's faith. Abram believed that God would do this. And so offspring are added to this blessing, to this covenant promise that God has made with Abraham. And I bring you back here because this is the theme that is running all throughout it. God makes this promise with this family, and now we're in several generations. They, the promise comes about. Abram has a son with Sarah named 
Isaac, and then Isaac has children, uh, Esau and Jacob, and that's who is the father of Judah, who is in our story today, and Joseph. And so all these things, here's God keeping his promise, but running alongside of God making this promise is his people putting the promise in jeopardy. Almost like as if they are just trying to hijack it and test the lengths in which God will go to keep his promises to his people. So go back here with me. I just want to show it to you because I think this is so fascinating. I just read, go back to chapter 12 now. We saw God make this promise. But then in verse 10, Abram and Sarah do something very foolish to test the Lord and to put the promise in jeopardy. Now verse 10 begins, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. God has just given them the land. They've just traveled there. Now some difficulty comes, a famine, and what do they do? Peace out, see you later. We're leaving. And then they get to, they enter Egypt, which always seems to go bad for God's people when they enter Egypt. He said to Sarah's wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. I mean, that's a good thing to say to your wife, right? Like, honey, I know you're pretty good looking. Actually, she's right there. Honey, you're pretty good looking. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And because, you know, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. You're so beautiful that people are going to kill me. Like, what am I supposed to do here? And so they come up with this plan. He's fearing for his life. He says, say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and my life may be spared for your sake. And so all this stuff happens and then plagues come and God has to intervene. God makes this promise. They don't believe it. They walk away. And so they're immediately they put, it, they put the promise in jeopardy. And what we'll find here is that God comes through. Guess what? Same thing happens after chapter 15. Okay, Chapter 15, more is added. They're getting up there in age. Turn over to chapter 16. Sarah's not able to, be, to, to have children. And so what does she do? She comes up with this, uh, this foolish plan and she says, hey, here's my Egyptian servant. Why don't you take her and have children through her because I'm old and can't have babies? Again, promise put in jeopardy. No, the promise would be fulfilled through your wife, Sarah. And so God, his kindness comes back and has to reconfirm it. And so I bring all of this up just for you to see the book of Genesis is about God keeping his promises and God's knuckle-headed people continually putting the promise in jeopardy. So too is the case as we fast forward several generations into our chapter today. It is the same dynamic. So go back to Genesis 38. Is your head spinning a little bit? You're like, wait, I thought we were talking about this stuff and now we're here. But I want you to see these central themes here. God's promises and God's promises in jeopardy. God's promises tempted to be overthrown. And so now we've fast forward. The covenant promises have been passed to Jacob. And so now the kind of the question that we're left with, if we were starting at the beginning and reading here, is which one of Jacob's 12 sons would this promise pass to? Okay. Which one would this pass to? The tradition of that day, who would it pass to? Which, which son in line? It would go to the, to the firstborn, right? They would, get the, they would get the inheritance. Well, if we had been reading here, again, we jumped in, so I'm, I'm giving you a lot of backstory. In chapter 35, Reuben, who's the firstborn, is disqualified. He actually goes and he sleeps with one of his father's wives, Bilhah. 
Not his own mom, but he had many wives. And so he commits this uh, adultery, this incest, and God says, nope, disqualify him. You won't, be the, you won't carry on. You won't be the progenitor of this promise. Then in chapter 34, just be, uh, uh, before that, the next two sons, Simeon and Levi, they are also disqualified for going on this killing rampage in revenge of their sister, Dinah, who had been uh, defiled. And is particularly using the sign of the covenant, circumcision, as a way to defeat these people and go on this killing spree. So what does God say? Nope. You're disqualified. The promise will not go through these. And so now we're down the top three sons. We've got nine more to go. Who will it be? And so who's the next? Who's the fourth born in line? It's Judah, the main player in our story today. So do you see where we're at in the whole scheme of things? And now we get to chapter 38. Who is the, he's the next one in line. And what has this guy just done? Put the promise in jeopardy. Will God have to go on to the fifth son, to Issachar, is the question that every Jewish reader and what we would, as we, if we had been reading through it, will this pass to him? But as our chapter ended, and as will unfold in the rest of Genesis, no, God comes through. So here's now the big idea of our chapter. This is what, I want you to write this in, the, in, your, in your Bible at the, your chapter heading. Last week we wrote, bad things happen, can happen even when we follow God. Here's your nail. Here's the big idea of this passage that I want you to know and see and what will go deeper in to uphold this thing is this. God goes to great lengths to keep his promises. God goes to great lengths to keep his promises. And this is a fundamental truth that you and I should love and embrace and walk forward in in confidence. And so let's go a little bit deeper now. We've read it. We've looked at the big picture. We see that the promise is in jeopardy. What lengths will God have to go to to keep his promise in this story? Because right now, it seems pretty impossible, doesn't it? seems pretty impossible. So let's look at the first five verses here. Judah's family. The length God will go through is even despite disobedience. Judah's family, disobedience. Look how verse one begins. Our chapter begins. It happened at that time. That's a connector. It's kind of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. So we just got out of chapter 37. Joseph has been just been sold to Midianite traders and then to Potiphar, the captain of the guard in uh, uh, Pharaoh's uh, army, the captain of his guard there. And so after that, Judah then leaves that area and he goes to this city. We don't really know why he heads out. Is he feeling guilty? Is he ready for a family? We don't know. But after this happens, after Joseph is sold, he now goes to the city of Adullam, which is about a mile northwest or so of Hebron, where the family lived at that time, south of Shechem and Dothan, where we left off last week. But it's kind of down in the south part of Israel, near the Dead Sea, if you're familiar with that geography. But what he does there is is very interesting. He leaves, he goes to this family, to these friends that are apart, that are not a part of the Israelite clan, and he does he, he does something so foolish. He takes the daughter of a Canaanite, of the people that were there, the land of Canaan, 
where the, they were unbelievers. They were the ones that occupied the promised land at that time, general term here. And he threw this woman, this unnamed woman intentionally. We know her dad's name, Shua, but we don't know his wife's name. And he has three sons. And this is in direct disobedience to the law of God, not to intermarry with the foreigners. Okay, it was a law that was not given yet that would come and be articulated in the law. But the interesting part about Genesis is when sin is, is uh, uh, emphasized here, it's always in direct contrast to the law that would soon to be revealed in Moses. Moses knew it at the time, and so as he's revealing it and as he's writing this, he's kind of putting it on display. But Judah does something that is in direct disobedience to what they were doing. And, and, and just to clarify this, the reason they were not to marry foreigners was not a race thing, but it was a faith thing. Because, see, they didn't follow the one true living God. And by marrying a foreigner, in this case, who would worship a pagan god or maybe didn't worship anything, it would corrupt the marriage and it would corrupt the children. It would corrupt the, the, the family here. This is the same reason why in the New Testament we're told not to marry unbelievers. We're not to be unequally yoked. Because if you don't share the thing that is the most important at the core of who we are, can you really even share a marriage? So if you're single and you're looking, don't do it. Don't put yourself in that place or it will be miserable for you. And so this is what Judah's doing. He goes, he marries this woman, and we see he has three sons. And to Israelite people, they're looking at this, they're like, oh, this is bad. This is really bad. This is not going to go well for them. And so we've got to pause here. What... What's our application? You know, we've been in this situation before. We've seen that this is a reoccurring theme throughout the book of Genesis, that God makes this promise, and then the promise is put in jeopardy once again. And so what is, what's our application here? Our application is this. God is more committed to his promises than we are. God is more committed to his promises than we are, and we must hold fast to this, that despite disobedience, God goes to great lengths to keep his promise. Despite the direct disobedience of this man, God is going to come through, and he is more committed to it even than Judah, the next in line who would have known these promises. Despite his foolishness, despite his disobedience, God is going to go to great lengths to keep this promise. And this, beloved, this is what keeps us today who love the gospel. The gospel that we refer to, the new covenant, the gospel is a promise, the promise of the forgiveness of sin, the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit, of eternal heaven or eternal life in heaven with Christ. And our disobedience from a human perspective puts all that in jeopardy. But praise be to Christ that he's more committed to this, to our sanctification, to our holiness, to him keeping his promise than even we are, despite the disobedience that we sometimes engage in. Amen? Man, God is committed to this. And so what is God going to do now? What will he do now in Judah's family? This is not going well. This is, this is bad. This is disobedience. We'll look, verse 6 now, at Tamar's husband's even despite death. 
And so now here in verse 6, the, some time passes. The sons are old enough now to be married and Tamar comes into the family. Some debate on who she is, but the silence of her heritage, we're not told she's a Canaanite, is likely that she is somehow part of the tribe of Israel. She is a relative. And we find out here that her first husband is wicked. He's wicked. What happens to him? He's put to death. And who puts him to death? The Lord puts him to death. The Lord puts, we don't know, we're we're just left to wonder here. We just know he's wicked, God calls us number, he's put to death. And so then in verse 8 then, the next son in line, Onan, is given to her through the Leverite law. This is outlined in Deuteronomy 25, but it was the custom of that day. We see this in Ruth through the kinsman redeemer, that when a husband died, in order to provide for the wife and continue on the family name of that firstborn, then the next son in line, if he was able to, would take that wife for himself to perpetuate the, 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 that family name. And if he wasn't able to, there's a process for that that uh, would go through with the elders, but Onan, he just takes her for selfish reasons, and his wickedness, what happens to him as well? It's killed. He gets killed, and it's not from the wickedness of his actions, but the wickedness of his unwilling, disobedient heart. Not, don't get caught up in the actions and what is he doing here and all that stuff. That's not necessarily the point. The point is he's killed because of his wicked, unwilling heart. And now after these two sons die, Judah's left with one son, and he panics, and what does he do with Tamar? Sends her back to his family, right? Her family. He's like, you know what? Uh, is young. I'm afraid. I don't know here, so why don't you go back and live with, uh, with your family uh, for a while? It's, you know, isn't all this like this family, people are dying, people are doing things, and isn't this like one of those bad car wrecks that you come upon on like I-35, and you know you shouldn't look? But you just do anyways. You're kind of terrified and horrified by what you see. That's what's, that's what's happening here. This is a mess. Sons are dropping like flies. And this poor woman, is she the cause of these things? Or is she just the victim of bad husbands? We, we're not really left to, to know. But they're all, it's just a mess. So what's going on? Let's pause here for a second and draw out a little bit of application for us. You know what? If we disregard God's ways, he's going to correct it. That's our application. If I disregard God's ways, he will correct it. That God is going to great lengths to keep his promise, even using death as the consequence for wickedness. And as, you know, God is committed to his promises, isn't he? And so here he's taking the 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 foolishness, the disobedience of a man's life and his decisions, and he is having to come through using this out of love for his own glory and love for his people and his faithfulness to his covenant that he is having to go to the extreme length here to demonstrate that. And this isn't new. In the New Testament, we see this in in, uh, Hebrews 12. We're told that God disciplines his children, right? He disciplines those he loves. He disciplines for his glory, those children that he loves deeply. Because God is committed to these things. God is committed to his promise. God is committed to our holiness. We're told that God is, is, 
is committed to, to these things. And so don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at difficulty in your life when you choose to go your own way, especially in regards to sexuality. God will, as we see here, God will correct it. And he will go to extreme lengths to do this. But his plan, especially in marriage, one man, one woman, in the context of committed, selfless, sacrificial marriage before God and man, those are things not to test him or trifle with because he's committed to those things. And he will go to great lengths to correct it if we disregard his ways. God is committed to his promises, is he not? Even despite disobedience, using the means of death, and now, as the story continues, in the midst of dishonorable actions. Look at here in verse 12, Tamar's intrigue and the dishonor that ensues. Verse 12, it continues going on. She sent back to her father's house. Tamar, or, uh, Tamar sent to her father's house. Shela is too young. But in verse 12 here, we see Judah's unnamed wife dies, and he skips town. He's like, you know, it's time to go. I've got to go check these things uh, with his now grown son. Enough time has passed. And Tamar gets wind of this, right? Tamar picks it up, and uh, she takes matters into her own hands. Does that usually go well with us when we take matters into our own hands? Not usually. She disguises herself with this veil that would be a veil for a wedding night. And she goes and she sits in a way that uh, she knows that Judah will have to pass. Okay, here's the path. Here's the way into the city. I'm going to go sit here. So he has to come across my path. And so Judah sees her. What? She, he thinks she's a common prostitute. They barter back and forth for this payment because Tamar doesn't trust Judah because he's already untrustworthy. He's withheld this son. And so he says a goat. doesn't have it. So they go back and forth, make this uh, deposit to, that she collects here. This, the signet is that seal that would be used for like important documents. You know, a man, a head of a house would have it for like as a family seal, you know, pressed in wax, stuff for important documents given. The cord that she collects is the necklace or the string that that signet would be kept around. And his staff was the staff that showed that he was a shepherd. It was a sign of his occupation. And so um, she collects these things because this would show, okay, this is who uh, committed this act here. This would be the seal or the deposit before she got the goat and then all those things would go back. They'd go through with the deed and we're told what? That she conceives. She becomes pregnant. So we don't have to go back through all the details, but this is what happens. And you know what? Here, Judah, he's living this life of disobedience and Tamar living this life of desperation. There's nowhere to turn. And so both give way to this dishonorable sin. You know, how many times have we found our own selves in desperate situations, making decisions that we now regret? Found ourselves walking in disobedience, and sometimes it seems like the only way I can get out of this is just to compound it with more dishonor, more, more lies, more sin, to, and, and down and down and down the spiral goes. We find ourselves in these desperate situations. But what's going on in our heart? We know as believers we want to follow the Lord. What's going on in our heart when we find ourselves in these situations? When we take matters into our own hands. Well, there's a whole bunch of things, but here's maybe four of them. It's probably one of these four things. It's maybe impatience. You know, we find ourselves in the midst of God's plan. We find ourselves in the midst of this life, and we're desperate, and we don't know where to go and get out of it. And, and, and instead of just waiting on God and his timing, we're just, we're just impatient. So we make dishonorable decisions. We make decisions that we now regret because we're just impatient. 
when we know, especially as believers, now wait on his timing. Might also be ignorance. Maybe we just don't know what to do. Maybe we don't know the way out. Instead of asking for help from the Lord or from those that are around us, we, we just make a decision in ignorance, trying to get out of the mess. Maybe it's just arrogance. Maybe you do know the way out. We think, ah, I know better than the Lord. I, I've got this. My way's better. I know better. And so it's just sort of a spirit of pride and arrogance. You know, I can, I can get my way out of this. And we make decisions that we now regret. And maybe this last one here, maybe it's a heart of unbelief. Maybe you find yourself in a situation that's so impossible that you've gotten yourself into such a pickle. You've made uh, decisions that you now regret. And you're like, there's no way that God can come through in this. I don't believe that he's powerful enough. I don't believe that he can untangle the web that is here. And so out of a heart of unbelief, distrusting God's power and his goodness and his ability to untangle the mess, we just continue to make decisions that we now regret. But is that the way that we get out of these things? Is that the way that God comes through? Who's more committed to his promises than we are? God himself. God himself. So we can wait patiently. We can seek the help that we need. We can humble ourselves and we can trust fully upon the Lord. You know, here's the thing. We can take risks to do what is right, yet don't go into sin. Don't, don't, don't give way to sinful things in order to get yourself out. See, here's the application that God alone, this is what this is teaching us, God alone fulfills his promises despite sin. See, this is the family that the promise is to come through, and none of them are doing anything to help the cause. They continue to make foolish decisions that put it deeper and deeper in jeopardy, that make it more and more impossible for God to come through. And we're here, we're thinking in terms, like, surely God is going to disqualify this son as well. He's already gotten the top three. Surely he's going to disqualify this son and move on to Issachar. Yet we know that God alone fulfills his promises despite the sin in a way that only he can sovereignly do. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the power, the providence, and the sovereignty of God. This is the hope that we cling to as his children hidden beneath the gospel promise that despite our sin, God can and does come through. Amen? Amen. This is what he's teaching us, that even in the midst of these things, God alone will respond. God alone can come through. But how does Judah respond to this? So this whole deed happens. Where are we left off in verse 20? Excuse me. <coughs> Judah's response. He deceives. We finally find out that Judah is a man of his word, and he does actually send a goat back. He, does actually, he doesn't go, but he sends one of his servants, right? He says, hey, go find the, the prostitute. And they get there, nobody, but nobody knows anything of it, right? They're like, no, we haven't seen a temple prostitute. We haven't seen anything. This is, you know. And so what does Judah do? In an act of saved face, to look at it, an act of saved face, what do, they, what do they do? Verse 23, Judah replies, let her keep the things as her own. She can just keep it, or we shall be laughed at. We should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her, so, all right, we're off the hook. Let's just keep it quiet. Let's just go. And then some time passes by. How many months? Three months pass by. And what happens in Tamar's life? 
she begins to show, right? And this would ruin her. Here is an unmarried woman betrothed and in waiting, and now her immorality is obvious. This immorality of the greatest offense, I would get that whole town talking, that would result in her death. And word gets back to Judah, and Judah gets indignant and orders the greatest consequence, death by fire. Until what? Until his own sin is uncovered, right? This is, we find ourselves in this. We get all fired up about other people's sin until our own is uncovered, and then that is what humbles us. We want others to receive the payment that they are deserved, the penalty and the punishment that, that comes with their sin and without looking at our own. So we, in those moments when we're confronted with it, we can either harden our own hearts, deny it, cover it up, or we can soften our hearts, confess, and repent. And in God's kindness, that's what Judah does here. He recognizes his sin, and he exonerates Tamar. Look at verse 26. What does he even say of her? That she is more righteous. She's more righteous than I. How many times have, you know, if you're a sports fan, it kind of spans the gamut from football and baseball to cycling and everything. We've seen athletes, you know, who um, get on others' case for taking a performance-enhancing drugs, you know, that uh, allow them to cheat. And, no, I would never do that. I wouldn't do that and deny it. And allegations come up and, no, no, no. And they blame shift. And, no, it was my trainer. No, the tests were wrong. No, the things were tampered with or whatever. And get on doing it. That guy should be fired. He should, um, you know. And then, as most often is the case, a little time comes out. And what happens? It is proven without, beyond a shadow of a doubt that, yes, they were cheating and they took these drugs to uh, give them a competitive advantage against the rules. They deny it for years, but eventually the truth comes out. And even after the truth comes out, some still persist in denying it, but others are softened and they confess. But what does God want us to do in the midst of our own mess? When we find ourselves in a mess like this, maybe in our, uh, of our own doing or some, somebody else's doing, but what does he want us to do in the midst of our own mess? He wants us to confess our sin and embrace God's grace, doesn't he? This is the gospel, beloved. This is the gospel. This is what we want to do. Our life is a, is a mess. And when God opens our eyes to see that, and we see, you know what? There's no way I can get out of this mess. He wants us to confess that and say, but you, Jesus, have made a way. And this is the gospel. This is what we are to do. It's just to simply admit, I can't do this. I can't get on on my own apart from Christ. Because the point here that, that is, we're being taught is God is, is, uh, goes to great lengths to keep his promises. And that in order to do that, that God uncovers what is hidden. Here's this sin that Judah uh, engaged in, and now it's trying to, they're trying to keep it quiet. But God will uncover sin, especially to protect his interests in his promise. When the promise is in jeopardy, he's going to protect his interests. So, be warned. But in the gospel, in the gospel, in our own life, his glory is his interest. Our holiness is his interest. He's committed to us. And so God uncovering these things is his kindness to us. 
This isn't something to fear. This isn't something to run from. But as God exposes the mess, as he uncovers sin, what does he do? He covers it with his, with his grace. I once heard a, 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 a read this from a pastor, but he said, there's nothing that could be uncovered about you as a believer, someone who has embraced Christ that is a Christian. There is nothing that could be uncovered about you that isn't already covered by his blood. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't there freedom in that? There's a freedom that even embracing these things, that God uncovers his mess, that God is going great lengths to keep his promise. There's great freedom in that. I read this great blog this week, and this author, Sam Albury, says this. It's on the screen, so you can just follow along as I read it. He's talking about our testimony here, and he says, our testimony is not, I was a mess, and then Jesus showed up, and now I've got everything together. But it's, I was a mess, and I still am, but I'm a mess who belongs to Jesus. A mess he is committed to sorting out. He came to me, has stuck with me, and continues to be my all and all. Indeed, we can say with John Newton. John Newton's a pastor of a, a passage and a hymn writer. He wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Amen? Amen? That's the beauty of our life. And that's the beauty of what God is doing. And that's what stories like this that are in the Bible, that's what these things teach us. That's what they teach us. Because uh, uh, this story here now, we're going we're gonna to close it out. This story now ends in labor. We're kind of left with this mess. We're almost left hanging. But I don't want you to miss how it ends because it, it ends in this, in, in this labor room. Tamar has these twins that result in deliverance. So six months go by. Six months go by. Tamar gives birth and one gets pretty tricky, right? One sticks his hands out right there, goes, waves for a little bit. And that midwife is real quick and wraps a string around her. I just read that. I was like, what is the, what's a midwife doing with string in her pocket or string in her bag? But... If, if you've ever met midwives or know them, they've got like everything in their little bag. They've, they've just come prepared for everything. So of course she has string. They pack everything. But he sticks his hand back in. He gets a little wave, gets tied up, brings it back in. The twins jostle around. And then the, act, the other one is actually birthed first. His name is Perez. And then the waver comes back out and his name is Zerah. And then the story ends. It's verse 30. Next week we'll get into chapter 39 and... That's really all that we hear about him. There's not much else said about them in the whole Old Testament. Generations pass by. There's whispers of it in Ruth and some of the prophets, other places here. But hundreds and hundreds of years go by, generations and generations go by until we really fully see the significance and how God has come through and the great lengths that God goes through to keep his promises. In fact... We don't really find out until we come to a genealogy in Matthew. We see a little bit of it in Ruth. There's a genealogy there, but turn to Matthew. Matthew is the first book in your New Testament. Sometimes we get hung up with genealogies. Who, when you're reading your Bible, you see a genealogy and you look at those names that you can't pronounce and you just skip on to the next part. Anybody do that? Yeah. But we'll miss things like this. Turn to Matthew. First, first book in your New Testament and how it begins. We begin to see things become uncovered. 
says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram, and Abinadab, and on, on, on down, until we get to verse 16. Look over there. And Jacob, different Jacob. They kept the name in the family, apparently, through many generations. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Who comes as a result of this messed up family we just read about in Genesis 38? The deliverer, Jesus. Who comes as a result of the great lengths God went to to fulfill his promise that though through Abram's offspring all the nations would be blessed, having to work despite disobedience, despite death, despite dishonor, despite deception, through a whole bunch of actions that threatened to derail the whole plan. What who came, rather, through the great lengths that God came through? The Deliverer. Jesus himself comes through this messed up family, the Savior of the world. And beloved, here's the thing, that if God can come through in a messed up situation and go to great lengths that even through generations, through hundreds of years, to come through and to make his plan known, why he worked through this family, beloved, let me just assure you that whatever your family situation may be, whatever dynamics exist in your family, whatever dishonor and disobedience and deception and whatever things have been in your life that have threatened for God's goodness to be made known. Beloved, love this. God goes to great lengths to keep his promises in your life. He does this through, all, the, all this is really predicated on being one of his covenant children, of being kept and found in the gospel through faith in Jesus, God going to great lengths, even sending his own son to die on the cross to redeem us. And this is good news. This is good news. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? We may not know all the details, but he does it for his name's sake. He does it because his reputation is on the line. He said he would do it, and it will surely come to pass. Amen? He said he would do it. He made the promise to Abraham, and he will do everything in his great power, his omnipotent power, to make sure that it comes through those great lengths. He sent his son Christ, the one whom all nations would be blessed through. He goes to great lengths for his glory and our good. That's what we see in a chapter like this. The great lengths God goes to to keep his promises for his glory and our good. Let's pray.